You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hello there, I'm Ollie Southgate, and from the Broadway Podcast Network, this is Putting It Together, where on the first Friday of each month, I sit down with Broadway's best business minds to talk about the state of the art and their role in keeping the world's biggest theatre town at the top of the list. On this month's show... Show X and Show Y are both for elder millennials. How do we get them into both shows? I would love to see that happen. I'm talking to Town and Little Shop of Horrors producer Sally Kate Holmes about the imminent return of commercial theatre in New York City and making more publicly accessible the secret source of how to produce a show. Producers are considered these bad folks who like are just sitting above the Belasco smoking a cigar and it's like no I couldn't afford a cigar if I wanted one. We discuss the newfound value of TikTok and digital captures to the theatre business as well as the safe reopening of the in-person experience too. If two people have the same strand then it is scary and it might be a company-wide breakout. If it is not the implication is that cool we'll isolate those two people and hopefully it's not already within the company. So let's find out how Sally Cade Holmes puts it all together. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Some roving band of performers came to my preschool and did Puss in Boots, and I was taken. Like I was, <laughs> and this is before I. This is before I had been inside a theater. But they they came into my preschool, they did the show, and I was so mesmerized by specifically the woman playing, I guess, the Puss in Boots, the titular character. Sure. Uh, it, was, it was like baffling to me that these were humans who were being other people and playing make-believe and they were adults. So it was like cool and uh, uh, something that I, I could look up to. So that happened. And that's my earliest, earliest memory of theater. Um, and then there were several other, you know, formative moments. Uh, I think I went to go see a, a local community theater production and told my parents, like, I, I want to do that. Um, and then that got them invested in some ways. And uh, they're like, this seems like a good 
a good thing for a young person to do. And I'm, I'm from the South. So, you know, I, I don't know, there wasn't a lot of theater around. Um, but what I was going to say, were they, were they arts people before that moment or my mother has always loved coming to New York and seeing shows. My great grandmother specifically was very much uh, a, a theater, like a creature of the audience. You know, she, they didn't do theater, but they loved going to theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but there wasn't a lot where I was from. So they would go to New York and see shows. Um, but weirdly, I think that that was good because mm-hmm. it, it gave me access to the, the community theater. Like it wasn't far away for me um, where I imagine like if you're in a, a bigger city, there are lots of opportunities for theater education. Um, but I just because it was such a small town, I started getting involved in my community theater and ended up, you know, doing everything um staying late mopping the floors my community theater director was one of those who was like you know you may be the star of the show but you'll also mop the floors and um it was like idyllic hindsight after 2020 and the year that we've had I'm like that that may have been some unfair working practices (laughs) like I, I don't know that that was entirely healthy but um it led me to love love this art form and uh figure out how to make a living from it, which I'm also questioning right now after 2020, but we'll sure. get into that later, Ollie. We'll get to that. Um, first of all, before we talk about how uh, how it's all coming crashing down, let's talk about how you uh, <laughs> how you got to producing. What was sort of the, the transition to it being a fun thing that you enjoyed to it being uh, a potential career? I think I can count on like, one hand the number of times my parents were like you might need a backup plan which I know is a lot fewer than some people each time they said that I think I dug in my heels a little more to be like nope I'm doing theater um Mm. in high school I think it became a you know that's where you decide what you're going to study in college and I decided I was going to study theater in college with a religious studies minor so really just (laughs) bang up money making majors um absolutely uh but i studied i was a theater generalist in college which i learned a little bit about everything it was like a liberal arts degree in theater but i still wanted to be a performer because i think everybody wants to be a performer at, at some point and and if you don't i think you're a very evolved person uh but mm-hmm. i uh decided to move to New York after undergrad and figure this out and, and started auditioning and very quickly realized that that was not my journey and that actors are some of the most amazing miracles of humans that exist to be able to do what they do. I started a theater company with some friends. We were doing off, off Broadway shows at the time under the, the goal was, you know, we saw a lot of off, off Broadway at the time, cause that's what we could afford. And we were always disappointed that there wasn't some streamlined element of production value. It just felt like everybody was trying to do something bigger than their budgets allowed. And it, it just wasn't cohesive. So we set out to start a theater company that was like, we can produce shows that look good. They have great integrity, Um, and great production values for an off-off-Broadway budget. Uh, I started it with a scenic designer, a costume designer, an actor friend, and a lighting designer. 
And I was, you know, an actor at the time. And our first production that we produced, there was no role for me. And I was like, well, I'll do everything that y'all don't do, which turned out to be producing the show, <laughs> which, but I didn't have language for that at the time. I was just right. like, you know, I'll, I'll be sure, you know, the contracts are signed, the, the marketing materials are, are in line with what the show is that we have butts and seats, you know, all of that good stuff. Um, yeah. So I kind of fell into it. And at the time I thought the only path for producers was in the nonprofit sector. Like I knew Broadway existed. I just didn't know how to get there. Right. Um, so I, I started learning about the nonprofit world and seeking out internships and in, in artistic teams within nonprofits, hoping to one day be an artistic director or something like that. And along the way, I met my wonderful mentor, Tom Curtihy, who uh, showed me that the commercial world is actually more in line with how I like to produce art. Um, mm -hmm. And that's that's the quick and dirty version. <laughs> and it wasn't even all that quick. <laughs> it's <laughs> sure. Uh, it's it's rare though to hear someone say that they found the commercial world was kind of an eye opener of this is a better way for me to produce, you know, the kind of art I want to produce versus the nonprofit. Usually you hear a lot more of it the other way around, you know, people saying yeah. that that nonprofit work really works better for me because it's, you know, less at stake and that, that kind of thing, less money on the line every time, less sort of pressure for every single performance to go completely perfectly from a sales standpoint. Like what was it about the commercial model that, that's kind of suited you better? No, I, I agree with all of that. That haunts my dreams. Uh, I think that that uh, two things can be true. Um, it is terrifying. And yet, um, I love the idea and the structure that I create one company whose job is to produce one piece of art. And every single element of overhead cost Every single person that is brought onto that team is for the, the same goal of having the best version of this one piece of art. Whereas in the nonprofit world, it has to be substantial and it has to serve the mission of an institution, which I like also see the great merit and value of. But for me, I really, the model of the commercial world just spoke to me like, cool, I have right. this, this piece of art that I'm passionate about and i get to do everything in my power to focus on that one piece of art i took these two shows from your website so please correct me if if i'm wrong in saying this but you're currently uh, a, a build producer on two active productions they're not playing right now but nothing is so that's fine <laughs> um hades town uh, on broadway and little shop of horrors off broadway mm -hmm. um I assume you you came to both. You mentioned your your mentor, the delightful Tom Curtihy. There, uh, I assume you came to those shows through your work with him. Is that right? I did. Um, my Broadway credits have all been uh, because I was Tom Curtihy's associate producer, um, which means basically when Tom has to be in four thousand rooms, I would take like. 15 to 20 of them <laughs> and, and try to like represent him in that space. Um, 
So that was one job. And in addition to that, I was offered the opportunity to come on as a co-producer on those shows, which was a very generous opportunity for him to give to me. So yes, that's the all of my Broadway credits have been through that. And then uh, Little Shop is the only off-Broadway credit that has come through my work with Tom. I've done several others that's just been through my network and work that I love. And I'm developing some stuff on my own. I actually left Tom Curdy Productions in January of 2020. What a time to leave and go out on your own. <laughs> um, but yeah, since then, I've been doing some some overhire producing and also developing some work that you'll hear about soon. Keep checking my yeah. website, Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, it's my homepage. I'd see it every day. <laughs> um, and over the last... Uh, you know, it used to be the thing for a while where you would say, like, over the past year, you know, the things that over the past eighteen months, that that number's gotten so big now that I, yeah, I can't it's anymore. Horrifying. Since since COVID, let's just put it that yeah, way. Yeah. Um. You're. Uh. You've also, Sally Kane. You've become a TikTok star. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my. Uh, my my partner is a TikTok star. I am the like sidekick. Um, so so your yeah. girlfriend, the actress Catherine Quinn. She's a, she, she's a voiceover actor who performed for a while, but's now more of a creative and producer, choreographer, producer type. Right. Yeah. How did you joining those to sort of talk about the businessy side of things start? Catherine has this amazing ability to like dive into something with her whole being. And she did that with Bridgerton, the musical <laughs> that was a TikTok sensation. Right. Um, she loved it. And we were having these conversations about like the broader implications of content being produced on TikTok. What does this mean in a COVID world? Like, is this opening access or is this a threat to creators? Like, are companies going to see all of this work on TikTok and then expect artists to basically write on spec? So we were having all of these kind of broad conversations. And I don't remember who said it first, but we were like, we should... We should film these and put them on TikTok. And we did. And now Catherine has 13,000 followers. And I'm like, you know, I should probably do some myself too. <laughs> or like get her to put right. my name in the in the handle. No, but Catherine, yeah. was, y'all should go follow her. She um, she had some, some great conversations on there and really tried to expand it from just me. She talks to other people too. But I do think there's right. some charm in our pithy theatrical banter it's lovely it's it's lovely but also it's like genuinely informative as well like yes it's it's the two of you discussing it and sharing opinions on it but what i also really like about it is that you're doing kind of what this podcast aims to do as well which is make more available some of the sort of mysterious workings that are not confidential but you know are just things that like the industry doesn't tend to share because we assume nobody's interested when in fact there are people who are interested in finding those things out oh my gosh if i had known about producing in the commercial space earlier i wouldn't have had to like go through all of those nonprofit internships to find what i (laughs) wanted to do absolutely um how have you found the response to them. I mean, I'm not suggesting you're the kind of person to uh, sit there refreshing the comments feed and seeing like, how many likes, how many likes for like, have you noticed anything that the public as they are on TikTok, uh, like want to know? One of the most meaningful comments that I think we got, at least to me, was from this dad whose daughter wants to go into theater. And we were having a conversation about equity, open access. 
And he was just like, thank y'all for presenting this. Like, I, I truly am in the dark and I want to understand more about this thing that my daughter is pursuing. So, yeah, I think you're so right. The same thing that this podcast is doing, lifting some veil of opacity that exists. I feel like that's been my my favorite outcome of it. Do you plan to continue using that platform? I think as long as Catherine will have me on there, I love having those conversations. I love presenting the information to people who don't have access. I, I My thing is, as too, I, I find that there's there's this divide between like the art and the commerce of it all um, that like producers are considered these bad folks who like, you know, um, are just sitting above the Belasco smoking a cigar. And it's like, no, I c- couldn't afford a cigar if I wanted one. Like, like, right. I feel as though there's a story that has been told about producers that has perpetuated and I'm interested in dispelling that and also like broadening the net of who thinks they can be a producer. So in that, yes, I want to continue having these conversations on TikTok, but I'm also working on like producing curriculum and figuring out ways to go into higher ed, to go into high schools. Like I I don't know yet. And I know there's also a, a company called the Business of Broadway that started that that is doing something similar. If our powers combined, if we can share information about this art form that is producing, I think the entire industry will be better for it. What's interesting to me is, especially amongst that TikTok community, one of the things I always notice in the kind of limited area of content about the business side of things, there's usually these comments that refer to People talk about Broadway as a singular thing, you know? They mm-hmm. say, like, Broadway really needs to do something about this. Yeah. Like, Broadway needs to fix this. Like, as if people seem to think there is kind of this this single overarching entity called, like, Broadway Inc. That, yeah. uh, you know, that makes the rules and decides what goes on and decide what closes and decides who gets to be in what and that kind of thing. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot harder than Oh, my that. gosh. We could do an entire podcast episode about this concept. To me, it comes down to linguistics. Because I think that when you and I talk about Broadway, we have an understanding of what it is. It is the 41 theaters. When the general population talks about Broadway, it is synonymous with musical theater. Like, and, and I think that that disconnect is actually a problem. Um, yeah. that that we as an industry could harness some energy from the broader definition of it. Like I think of tours, of Broadway national tours. People in my hometown in Greenville, South Carolina, like they understand that they're not in New York, but they think they're seeing a Broadway show, not a national tour. Like it is, yeah. it's just a fascinating disconnect that I'm really interested in, in exploring and potentially expanding the definition of what Broadway is. Absolutely. I mean, you've got. I mean, you've got registered companies with names like Broadway in Chicago, Broadway in San yeah. Francisco. Like, it's it's Broadway in those places because they're talking yeah. about it as a as a format of a show. So of course, there's confusion. <laughs> All of that to yeah. say, of course, they're yeah. talking. People are talking about it in these broad broad terms. Yeah. Um, and so TikTok aside, what else have you been up to in the last little bit since sort of spring of 2020? I started out kind of in triage mode and I saw how many of my performer friends lost jobs. And I I work with this company, uh, Play on Shakespeare, who do really gorgeous modern translations of Shakespeare's works. 
Um, the amazing thing about this company is they take Shakespeare's text and rigorously examine it. And they take modern playwrights to do this. They assign a modern playwright to a Shakespearean text. And, and basically the modern playwright enters into a partnership with Shakespeare and keeps the, you know, a lot of the rhythm, a lot of the, the iambic pentameter and all that good stuff, but really looks at the Elizabethan context versus our modern context and says, cool, how can this joke that there is no way an audience member in 2021 is going to understand actually land on our ears and actually make, like, I feel so bad for these actors having to like mime phalluses all the time in Shakespearean comedies so that we understand that this is a funny thing. Um, It's Uh like, what happens if the language actually lands on our ears a little easier and we just kind of understand that this is a a dick joke? Um, Can I say that on this show? Absolutely. So that's play on Shakespeare. I produced a bunch of digital readings for them because we were like, cool, we're sitting on sitting on a little bit of money. We can pay artists. Let's just it was before equity or SAG had any understanding of like whose jurisdiction digital content was. And I, I was just like, we have to move. These people need money. There are no paychecks. So we, right. we kind of just like, when it was the Wild West, started producing these digital readings. And then uh, been working on developing some work that will hopefully be live and in a theater in the, in the coming year and a half. Um, and I also have been dabbling in, in real estate. I have always been fascinated by it. And interestingly, the deals are structured not dissimilarly to theatrical deals. So that's been filling my pandemic time. Talk to me a little bit more about what you just said about real estate deals <laughs> being structured similarly to shows. I would love yeah. to hear more about that. No, I, I just feel like, you know, when you're entering into a uh, a deal with with artists who have an emotional connection to their work. Obviously, um, uh-huh. there's just there's a lot of interpersonal work that goes on when you are putting on a show, and that is the exact same as real estate. <laughs> um, right. There's a lot of making relationships. How do we make this work for all parties? In terms of structuring my business, I actually, one of my theatrical investors is my partner in these real estate journeys. So we, we structured it basically like front money. So cool. You're going to give me front money for, um, the down payment and then, uh, an additional investment for any work that we have to do on the property. And you get extra terms on this, my work in the theatrical space kind of gave me a framework um, to, to do this other other path. And a lot's happened on the industry side, despite there being no shows. Uh, there's been a lot of sort of news in the, the business side of things in general, a long list we could go through. But what stands out for you as kind of being the, the big things that happened on the business side of Broadway over the last uh, 18 months? I think my heart has been in the conversation surrounding equity, um, not the union, but the actual concept of sure. <laughs> equity, both from a workplace practice place and a diversity and inclusion place. I think that the pandemic brought to light, I mean, so many things about 
the way that we have run our productions and organizations and the stillness that was forced upon us during the pandemic made us recognize that that some of those don't work for anybody. Like mm. I keep coming back to this concept of 10 out of 12s. Um, I know that a lot of our nonprofit colleagues have said, no, if you have a child at home or if you are caring for someone, there's no way that that is a healthy work practice. I think a lot of people took the space and time to really do some internal work during this time. I just hope and pray that that continues. And my fear is that it's been an isolated moment and that now that Broadway is coming back, it will go back to how it was. Right. Um, and I am excited to hopefully be a part of holding feet to the fire and committing to work that looks, sounds, and is different than before. It's hard because it is so individual. Like, like I think of, I don't know, the meetings that we're in all the time where so many of these power structures are just, the power structures that existed are just present. You know what I mean? Like they just yeah. exist because no one has questioned them. And it's going to take the leaders of those rooms doing internal work and people who are fearless saying, hey, can we do this differently? And I really look forward to that happening and look forward to seeing how it manifests. Because I know it will. The pendulum of time swings towards justice. Like that, that is true. And I, I'm just excited to see how it happens on Broadway. And I am fearful that it will take longer than I want it to. <laughs> right. Yeah, I have to say as a as someone who's who's just gone back to a, you know, a salaried role in the Broadway space, which is the the kind of an unusual thing actually, you know, a yeah. a, a full-time permanent contract for something that's like Broadway or Broadway adjacent. It's it's strange. I was thinking about that the other day. But as, as someone who's just gone back to that after after being on, you know, a kind of understandable furlough uh, mm -hmm. for, for 10 months or so, I got to say, like, when, when I was put on that furlough, the one thing I was kind of able to do to justify it was think, well, you know, at least after all of this, we'll be going back into a, a completely different world where, yeah. you know, there will have been some humbling happened and yeah. people will understand on the whole that there is other life to go yes. and explore and and uh, and so work-life balance is important and that kind of thing. Um, and it was, it it's better now. It was very rough when I first went back to realize mm -hmm. that that was not the case at all and that there were so few people left that everything had just got 10 times as frantic and difficult. Yeah. It's getting better though. It, it feels like it's moving back towards... Right now, it feels like the dial is moving back towards where where it was before all of this. I, and yeah, I agree with you. I hope it keeps moving once it gets back to normal into kind of the world that we all want rather than just yeah. uh, staying there. But only time will tell. I think the shows have to be on again before we can really assess yes. that, you know? I know. And it's been manifesting for me in, you know, I'm taking things more slowly. Um, I am really looking at every angle of a show before jumping into it. I am thinking broadly about artist scheduling, like how to make productions work for humans, not just for the autotrons in a capitalist society. <laughs> like, mm. um, 
that feels important to me. Yeah. I realize that I don't know that that theater has to be my only source of income for me to feel successful at it. Like yeah. I I am very excited about this idea because what what I fell in love with was not a job. I fell in love with an art form that had nothing to do with money. And then when you tie your livelihood to it, there is a scarcity involved. It's like, oh, I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this so that I can afford to live my life. Um, and that's also part of the reason I'm interested in continuing to, to develop a real estate portfolio. Because what if I don't have to depend on theater to pay my right. bills? Yeah. How, what type of art can come from that? So a couple of shows have opened again now on Broadway at the time that we're recording this. Most of them are still to come in the next few weeks and months, um, including both of both of yours that we mentioned earlier. At this moment in time, with what's going on with Delta cases, what we've seen happen in the West End, uh, historically they're sort of mm-hmm. open in, in a more permanent way now, but their many attempts have, have been kind of you know up and down. Do, do you think... Broadway is still ready to do this in September and to open everything again and have it go successfully? I feel like anyone who has a sure answer to that is lying. Sure. <laughs> like sure, it sure, is sure. like sure, I could prognosticate. Uh I do not know, but I think that the groundwork is laid and I think that as an industry, the fact that we came out and said you must be vaccinated and you must, you know, wear a mask inside of our spaces was a type of national leadership that felt really, really good. I heard Broadway mentioned on more national podcasts and news shows than I have in years because we said that. Um, So I feel like we are setting ourselves up for success. What we don't know is what we don't know. Like, like, so we, we have to prepare for everything Mm. and and kind of i think make peace with the fact that our entire world is different um and and we can't know i i am proud of our industry for how we're handling this i think that the vaccine policies the fact that when i went to passover like i felt very safe i'm also i'm fascinated from an audience perspective about the audience's comfort level of going and sitting in a space in a theater. Right. I'm curious about off Broadway versus Broadway. Cause I will say I have a hunch that smaller spaces may be easier to fill if there's just less human beings in close contact. Sure. But then when you look at the numbers, it is relatively safe to be in a Broadway theater. Um, And by relatively, I mean like the likelihood of getting a breakthrough case in a Broadway theater full of vaccinated masked people is very, very low. Catherine actually made a TikTok about this that you should go check out. She like looked up numbers and, and actually pulled the percentages, but it is tiny. So yeah, I feel like I cannot answer that question, but I do feel that we are prepared. Good. Okay, yeah, I guess that's I guess that's the best any of us can hope to be right now. Yeah. Um. And so yeah, both of your shows are back in September. Um. Hades Town was actually one of the first to announce that it would be coming back earlier than that September fourteenth date, which mm-hmm. was sort of arbitrarily handed down by the state at some point. Um. <laughs> are you 
are you happy to be up first or would you have preferred to wait given how things have changed since that was announced? I mean, when was it? Way back in April, I believe. I'm thrilled to be up first. I think that everybody's going to have to pivot at some point. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so why not, why not get open and start doing the damn thing? Um, right. And Passover was first and they're knocking it out of the park. So I, I feel like every day we're learning more and more. Um, and yeah, sometimes it's more scary stuff, but mm-hmm. I think that with the FDA approval of the vaccine, I'm hoping that like those human beings who are hesitant will jump and, and get it. I am concerned, Ollie, about the lack of tourism in the city. And I do right. think that we're going to struggle financially. So figuring out creative ways around that, it's going to be front of mind very soon. But then I, I think that the national tours going out is very exciting. I actually flew to Dallas to see Wicked and that theater was very full. Uh, so I think there is a demand. It's just Broadway is in a very tricky spot of being, of having a geographic necessity of people yeah. coming to New York. So, so I am curious about initiatives around getting New Yorkers into the theater um, mm-hmm. And, and how do we do that? Oh, you haven't seen, you haven't seen Wicked in 15 years? Come on back. <laughs> like, sure, uh, sure. That, that sort of, those sort of, those sort of initiatives. I'm curious how, how those are going to work as, as New York itself is, is building back in tourism. And I just saw that the, the marketing campaign that Drew Hodges is putting together, I'm really excited to see, to see how all of that gets rolled out as well. Actually, yeah, I believe, I believe by the time this, comes out that will already have started which is good news um how how have you felt about the government approach both the state and national government approach to the arts during the shutdown because i know you know people people have strong feelings about it obviously there's there's a lot of other things they had to prioritize during this period of time but it it it's felt like when they have said things about the arts and made those decisions people have been disappointed by it Where, where have you sat on on what's happened kind of from a a state level. Yeah. I do not envy a single person in, in these conversations because it is, it's, it's kill your darlings. Like when you have an industry of people who cannot work based on this pandemic, um, but you also have an economy that cannot run. I truly don't know what I would do if I were in the position of some of our politicians and leadership. I know that I'm very thankful to Senator Schumer for really putting um, the Shuttered Venues Operation Grant work uh, front and center. Um, Is it perfect? No. Am I grateful for it? Yes. Is it an administrative nightmare? Yes. But does it exist? Yes. So like, right. I, I, you take the good with the bad. I, I'm not going to come out and be like, it was a, a horrible reaction because there were so many things to react to from a government standpoint. Uh-huh. Um, and of course, personally, I always want my industry to be taken care of. And we eventually were slash are slash it's getting there. <laughs> I feel like right. the deadline for the uh, shuttered venues operation grants was la- last week. And I had a flurry of emails being like, Oh my God, we need this and this and this. But I hope that all of that works out. If things do either get worse again 
once these shows are open. I mean, I mean, at this point, I, we've stopped talking about it as the first wave and the second wave and the third wave because you know yeah. it looks like it looks like there is going to be some ongoing sense of those those peaks and troughs. If things do get considerably worse again, or if even something completely unrelated to this uh, might bring down another Broadway shutdown in the future, obviously this is the longest one there's ever been. But if mm-hmm. if something of similar scale happened do you think having gone through this both you as a producer and the industry as a whole do you think we're better equipped for it or or do you think it's just sort of inevitable that if you shut it down the impact is always going to be terrible but i guess my real question is has this paved the way for any kind of changes um in the way those businesses are structured and that kind of thing that could protect better against this kind of thing in the future i know that at least in my producing philosophy, I am entering into every single piece of theater thinking about my multiple revenue streams that exist outside of butts and seats. I'm like, cool, how do we ensure some digital capture? How do we create content that can expand beyond what's happening in our building? I do not know if that's happening across the board, but I can speak from a personal place that like, look, the business model is already pretty busted. So like we need to figure out other ways of driving revenue anyway. Why not just incorporate that from jump? And then if another global disaster happens, then we also have additional assets that aren't geographically necessitated. So I think yes, in that way. And do I do I think that we are more prepared for any future cataclysmic event as an industry? I mean, yeah, we just know so much more. That's my thing. It's I am so hopeful for this fall, just based on the fact that yes, Delta is out there, but I'm learning more and more about these like PCR tests that our artists are taking or the people in the building are taking. They can trace strands of the virus so they Mm. can establish whether or not if two people have a positive PCR test within a company, if it is the same strand, then it is scary and it might be a company wide breakout. If it is not, then the implication is that, cool, we'll isolate those two people and hopefully it's not already within the company. Like we are learning so much about the virus itself and with vaccines and with treatments. Like I, I feel very hopeful that we've learned a tremendous amount in a year and a half, two years. And I really, really hope, Ollie, that that we will not get caught with our pants down for lack of a better phrase um without some type of content to put out because that that is what i was most disappointed with at the beginning of the pandemic like Hmm. we just didn't have anything hamilton had finished filming and that went very well for them (laughs) like yeah um so i'm hoping that more and more producers will recognize that capturing your stage production in some type of digital medium is only helpful. Right. Even if you never touch it until the show's closed, having it available, having it on hand in case you need it. It takes a long view approach because it does require more capital up front and it requires a higher capitalization to fundraise for that. Um, right, because ideally you want it, you want that capture to be the original cast and that kind yes. of thing. Yeah. And but but I think it's so worth it. And I am so, and I know you're a numbers guy, but I, uh-huh. and I think the numbers agree with me on this. I do not believe that putting out digital versions of a show cannibalize ticket sales. 
And I think Mm -hmm. that there is this industry-wide kind of antiquated view that that is true. And I just think that's a fallacy. I like, I feel it in my bones. I feel it as a millennial. (laughs) I'm like, if I see something on a screen, I still want to go be a part of an event. Like it has, Mm -hmm. the two have nothing in common to me. I was having this conversation with a, a friend of mine the other night about how if you look at something that kind of exists in a similar space where it is performed on stage but it isn't theater um if we, when you talk about like live comedy and live music there is a wealth of this available to you online so that you can get into it and get very passionate about it and know that you want to come and see it live and then you can come see the best version of it live yeah. And to me, that make that is just common sense. But right. I think that folks who, you know, put theater on a pedestal, which I put theater on a pedestal, it's my favorite art form. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't want to be precious with it anymore. That keeps folks from accessing it. It keeps new fans from being developed because they can't get into a Broadway. Like, I th- it keeps money from going into the pockets of everybody involved because there are only so many tickets in a theater, like so right. many seats in a theater that we can sell. I think if we took a cue from music and comedy and also just from the pandemic, we had nothing to sell. And that's your opinion. And I, and I very much agree with you. But do you think from conversations you've had with your colleagues across Broadway, those attitudes are changing? Or do you still think we're, we're about to go to just about the same uphill struggle on that front? There's a generational shift, I think. I think that that the generation of uh, up-and-coming producers are very much aligned with that because we've existed in, in a world with high-speed internet our entire lives. And we know that theater still exists, even though we can like watch bootlegs on YouTube. Those two things still there's a market for both things <laughs> um, yeah. so why aren't we making money off of the off of the films that already exist what do you think will be different about broadway as a whole by the time we actually come back both sort of in the immediate short term and permanently People said during the shutdown that, you know, it would be the best time to see shows because everyone would have to like slash, slash, slash their prices and you'd be able to see whatever mm-hmm. you wanted and there would be two for ones and this kind of thing. I mean, it hasn't happened yet. I, mm-hmm. I, I hope from a business standpoint, it doesn't have to. But um, do, do you think we will see after that initial burst, like a softening that means the overall standard for ticket prices goes down? That's a great question. Uh, I don't think ticket prices can go down based on our operating model. Like like operating budgets are such that we have to keep charging people a good amount. And I think that we may see, unfortunately, some short-lived shows if the shows aren't willing to get creative about pricing structures. I do think that it will bounce back. And I also think that it's possible that art may be affected by it. We might not see $24 million capitalizations for a while. Um, right. I think that at least in my aesthetic world, I am looking for honest, earnest, imaginative pieces of art that I can get lost in, but I don't necessarily need a huge spectacle to get lost in. Like I'm craving honest storytelling that is created in an imaginative way that I don't necessarily think needs a huge budget. So I think... I think that the stories that are going to that are going to be told in the near future will be a, a testament to the space we're in financially. 
<laughs> but as soon as I say that, I'm like, oh, I don't know. The big movie companies could come in and also make make a pretty huge spectacle. So I, I don't know. I think that the New York ticket buyer is going to be incredibly important for at least the next few months as people are still hesitant to fly and come into the city. I'm really curious what happens to some of the long running shows that, that depend on international tourists. Mm. Um, I'm thinking like the Lion Kings uh, of the world, the Phantoms of the world. And I, I hope they, I, I would love to see it again. So I hope they maybe do a, a temporary, <laughs> a temporary sale. And then once yeah. the world opens back up, Sure get those ticket prices back to where they were. I tell you the first thing when everything was going back on sale, I bought I bought tickets for two shows for that for those sort of early September weeks. One is Chicago and one mm-hmm. is The Lion King. Yes. I wanted to I wanted to go and see these shows that you sort of take for granted at a certain point. I flew I, to Dallas to see Wicked. Like <laughs> like yes. I was so excited to see this thing that I haven't seen since I was 16, you know? Right. Um, that's so interesting. Also, that piece of um, content that The Lion King put out with, where the cast is singing the opening oh, the, for the first time with Julie Taymor. Yeah. A weeping mess. I was a weeping <laughs> mess looking at I was just like, okay, yes, I feel things. Do you think there's going to be the same kind of hyper-competitive nature between different productions really feeling like they have to they have to be the ones to get the attention of whatever handful of people are in town or do you think there'll be a bit more of a industry-wide sort of model of well if they're seeing any broadway show that's a good thing do you know what i think is going to maybe contribute to more kumbaya feelings um no published grosses Sure. Uh, yeah. I I do think that like without I mean look at London right they don't publish grosses and they have a huge volume of shows that feel less competitive. The same producers are still producing on Broadway, so there will always be that competition. And I right. think it's smart to know if we have the exact same target audience as another show, then we have to figure out a way to get to those people. I would be really curious about partnering with that other show and being like, oh, interesting. So show X and show Y are both like four elder millennials how do we get them into both shows i don't know i would love to see that happen that is a far-fetched i think pipe dream um but yeah i think that on the surface ollie it will be any show is a good show for you to see like i think that the fact that we're doing an industry-wide marketing campaign is a testament to that and the fact that everybody was willing to sacrifice to like put that together but ultimately human nature is such that of course you want your show to be successful there's less data involved because you don't necessarily know who is grossing what so i think that encourages folks to run their own race a little bit more yeah uh when we talk about the recovery of broadway the phrase better than ever gets thrown around quite a lot these days what does a better than ever Broadway mean to Sally Kate Holmes? A Broadway where transparency is at its core, transparency and access. And I don't know that we're on track for that, but I do know that I'm committed to working for that. I actually took issue with the only intermission campaign because my my hope was that we close down 
Medea and we're opening back up in the sound of music. Like I don't want it to be intermission. <laughs> like I, I want it to be a completely different show. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it does feel like it was an intermission, at least for now. And I'm really curious what happens once all the shows are up and running. And once we have full casts and crews demanding transparency and a, a new Broadway I think it's going to be really exciting. It's an exciting time to be in this industry and to watch it grow. I think we're in a growth period. There are going to be inevitable growing pains, but we'll get through it better. We'll call it only intermission with a technical fault that delayed it slightly. Yeah. We've got the automation working now, but we are going to have to do the act two opener a little bit differently. Yes. Yeah. And, and <laughs> you, you know go. what? With totally different costumes too, just for fun. Like I just, I do want it to be, I want it to be different. Yeah. There are a lot of people working on that. Sally Cade Holmes of Holmes Productions. And you can follow Sally Cade on Instagram and TikTok. She's at sally.cade. That's C-A-D-E. Or check out her website at sallycadeholmes.com. Tickets for Hadestown on Broadway at the Walterker Theatre are at hadestown.com. And tickets for Little Shop of Horrors off-Broadway at the Westside Theatre are at littleshopnyc.com. Lastly, you can check out her real estate adventures at upstatesojourn.com. That's upstate, S-O-J-O-U-R-N.com. Putting It Together is produced by Zori Berenstein and Alan Seals for the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Eulis Pekan and artwork and editing is by me, Ollie Southgate. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Ollie Southie or check out my website at ollysouthgate.com. Here is year three of me saying that's spelled with an I-E, not a Y. Thank you for tuning back in. This episode kicks off season three of the show as we head toward the bulk of Broadway's reopenings. I'll be back on Friday, October 1st with more coverage of those reopenings and the early signs of life in Broadway's biggest ever revival. Until then, thank you for listening, and goodbye. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud, with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor, and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.